Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Japan is slowly opening up again. The official, unofficial lockdown ended at the beginning of June. Restaurants, bars, and shops are reopening. With a lot of plastic curtains and sheeting separating patrons and proprietors. We're still a long way from normal, but it's better than being stuck in the house. International travel is mostly shut down, but domestic travel is really picking up. It seems that most of the hotels and resorts in Okinawa have already been booked solid for the summer by Japanese who would normally be flying to Hawaii. And Okinawans, who are grateful for the business but still nervous about the virus, have some pretty mixed feelings about that. And of course, with international travel shut down and all the trade shows canceled, most foreign startups have put their Japan market entry plans on hold. And that's normally a lot of activity. If you are a B2B startup, you need to be looking at Japan. It can be a hard market to crack, but it's a really lucrative one. So today, I want to reshare what is one of the most amazing Japan market entry stories of all time. It has ambition, misdirection, drama, serious career risk, and、uh, rock concerts. It's an old story, but a good one. The technologies have changed since then. But the Japan market entry challenges and strategies have not. And to kick things off today, we get a chance to sit down and talk with my good friend Alan Miner about the challenges Oracle faced and overcame when breaking into Japan. I'll warn you in advance that this episode is longer than most, and believe me, I cut things to the bone. But there's just too much great information about how to overcome both the personal and professional challenges that foreign companies face here. I felt like I would be cheating you if I'd edited out any more. In fact, Alan explains how Oracle successfully maneuvered out of an exclusive distribution agreement not only once, but two separate times. This is something that has sunk more than one foreign company here. But Alan tells the story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting down here with Alan Miner. And Alan, you've, brought, you've been involved with the market entry in a lot of companies into Japan. Yeah. But、uh, today I want to focus on the one that you, you led personally,、okay. which was Oracle Japan. Yep. So, kind of, let's back up and. What was attractive about the Japanese market? What made Oracle decide that they needed to be in this country?、Um, actually, that happened a few years before I joined Oracle. In,、uh, I believe it was 1982, Oracle was about a $5 million a year revenue company worldwide, five years old as a company, had you know, just released their very first commercial version of the Oracle database software. There was a quite a bit of press about how interesting is this relational technology. It doesn't require traditional programming to do data manipulation. And、uh, the US press got read by some technical geeks in Europe and one in particular in Japan. So this sounds really interesting. 
we ought to figure out if we can bring this cool new technology to Japan. So, so, it was, so it was a partner company it was, it was pulling a company, you in? Or? Yeah, it was a company called Digital Computers Limited that at the time was building uh, DECVAX clones. All right. And because Oracle originally was released on the DECVAX computer platform, uh, the, the president of that company, a gentleman named Mr. Yamada, had read an article about it. So this is interesting. We got to reach out to Oracle and see if we can sell their software in Japan. And that contact from an interested Japanese distributor was, was what got it all started back in 1982. Okay. I think that's actually, even today, I think that's still a really common case. Yeah, I think it is. I think, I think it, for, for companies that come into the market early, perhaps earlier than they are really ready, yeah, I think that's that's the most common. Uh, yeah, it's it's very it's very common for a young company with really interesting technology to be found by someone in Japan or other countries of the world, and to the company. Wow, everyone knows that Japan is potentially a big market. So I don't think I don't think there's a question about the potential opportunity or the size of the potential market in Japan. Well, I think everyone, but often it's the often it's the trigger of someone. Oh, someone is interested in our software in Japan. But it seems like that would be a really that could be a really two-edged sword. So, you know, Oracle was not a small company at that point. No, we were. It was five million in revenue, maybe sixty people. Uh, okay. Two, two. There was there was no international division at the time, and so the person who took the inquiry was one of I think three or four U.S. sales representatives. How did you guys vet this company? How did they make sure it was for real and not just a? Well, the, the, the president and one of his technical staff, I understand, flew to Oracle's headquarters in California, uh, met with the sales team at length. I'm sure that because they were clearly well informed about the DECVAX environment, uh, they had customers for their computer products, they clearly seemed to have some understanding of what you could do with a relational database that um, I think was some technical vetting, maybe not a lot of time spent on, you know, what might they be able to do in the marketplace. But I'm not sure that Oracle really, at, at that point, with, you know, 500, that Oracle had really figured out how it was going to grow the market. Hmm. So it just was a, a good strategic fit, and yeah. it was a market they couldn't have addressed anyway. Exactly. So let's give it a try. And there was not even an international division actively pursuing international opportunities yet. And so I think our initial entry into England, uh, the Netherlands, and Japan all started that way with some some local geek who was always staying on top of the latest technology trends, reaching out and saying, we'd love to distribute your software in our country. All right. And so things obviously went went well for them. They sold the product. Yeah. And when, when how did you get involved? When did they bring you on board? Well, um, as Oracle continued to grow, we expanded the platforms that the product ran on. It was originally on the VAX, and we introduced Unix platforms, uh, the PC, and even IBM mainframe computers. And as we were expanding the platforms for Digital Computer Limited, the Unix environment and the VMS environment were quite comfortable. But when we wanted to introduce a, a mainframe product, they didn't know anything about the IBM space. They didn't want to get involved in the IBM space. Oh, okay. And so as we were beginning, and by that time we had hired uh, a vice president of international. I think he had one or two staff, and the company was maybe a couple hundred people by then worldwide. The decision was that we were now proactively trying to grow the business internationally. And if the distributor in a particular country was not interested in the mainframe product, we believed at the time we were going to have a huge uh, business in the IBM mainframe world. Turned out not to be the case. <laughs> but at the time, that was that was what the folks at Oracle believed. And because Digital Computer Limited didn't understand, didn't want to uh, pursue the mainframe space, 
the decision was made to identify a second distributor in Japan that would focus on the mainframe products. Okay. Uh, and this so, was in 1986 that this work was going on, and we added a, or 1985 rather, 1985, and we added a second distributor called Nishin Products that had experience with the Adabas product out of Germany. So the for the database. for the structure of this, did each of these distributors have uh, an exclusive right to resell within a within the product line? Yes. So this so Digital Computer Limited had exclusive rights around the Vax line of computers. Nishin Products had the exclusive rights around the mainframe, and both companies were free to sell the Unix and uh, PC products. Okay. This is a challenge. I think a lot of companies kind of get themselves into coming into Japan mm -hmm. is if you give a distributor exclusive rights and they're successful, you're going to want to come into the market yourself. Okay. And that's well, exactly that's in, what in you the did. Database, well, that's, that's exactly what happened with an informant. How did you deal with that? How did you kind of change the, the game for these exclusive arrangements you had? Well, I think the environment we had, the two distributors in Japan with distinct sectors of the market... Uh, and I think between the two of them, uh, well, the fact that we had those two distributors and we did not have a Japanese language product at the time, mm. and the two distributors were apparently were arguing over what the spec should look like and which of them should be authorized to build it for Oracle, which of the two were technically more competent to help advise us on building the Japanese version. Okay. That, that is the situation in which uh, Oracle came and interviewed me on, at, on the campus at Brigham University, and when they noticed that I was not only a computer science student, but I spoke Japanese, uh, the recruiter said, we want to hire you. And it was he'd said, oh, I see you speak Japanese. I said, yes, but why is that <laughs> relevant in a, soft, in a computer programming job? And he explained the situation they had, and so we need someone to, to sort this out for us. Oh. And so it was, it was the first time I realized that there was such a thing as, as, as making software work in the Japanese language. Right. Uh, it was a lot harder back then. It, and no one had really figured it out yet. Uh, and then the caliber of the people attracted me to Oracle. And my, my first job was basically to, to uh, meet with the distributors from Japan, uh, form my own opinions about their technical capabilities, and to develop and resolve together with them what the Japanese spec should look like, and then build and deliver the Japanese product. So did you end up uh, going with one or the other to implement it, or did Oracle do it in-house? What, what I concluded was that the digital computer team uh, had a clear understanding of what should be done and how to do it, and were further along in actually building their own prototype of mm -hmm. a Japanese version. So I fairly quickly made the choice to collaborate with them on developing the specification, but Oracle was very uncomfortable with the idea of outsourcing that development to a third party. And so my job was to work with them, have them provide me code samples they'd built. And then within, within although I was working in the international division, I also had sort of a dotted line uh, reporting structure into the database development team that oh, okay. gave me access to source code. And I was able to sort of build the prototypes and check in uh, Japanese code into the source control system. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, a, a that's almost an ideal working relationship with your distributors. Was Oracle thinking about setting up a direct sales force here in Japan, or were they planning on just continuing to use uh, distributors? Uh, this is 1986, and at the time we weren't. We're still. So I think in that year that I joined, the total revenues from Japan were $250,000, out of about $25 million of revenue worldwide for Oracle. Okay. So still small, but uh, Nishin Products had just 
got going around the, the mainframe product. Toshiba had also become an OEM by that point and was reselling the product on their Unix computers and digital computer was selling some. So my task, as well as building the Japanese language of the product, was to figure out how with the distributors to grow the revenues to half a million dollars in that first year, uh, fresh out of college, working at headquarters. And uh, we got to about $495,000 in revenues with some a new OEM relationship and increased sales uh, with with the partners. And I, I forget, oh, now I remember, th- there, there was a very specific event that occurred that accelerated our uh, transition from those distributors. So when I joined, I think the intention was to continue working with those distributors and just continue growing the business organically. But uh, one year after I joined, um, the international VP received a call from Bill Totten, who runs the Ashisto software distribution company in Japan. Okay. And uh, the two of them had worked uh, together a few years before uh, our VP joined Oracle. Uh, and Bill had decided he wanted to get into the relational database space. He wanted to have a relational database product to sell. And uh, he had discovered that Ingress did not have a distributor in Japan yet. Looking back, most people remember the battles between Oracle and Sybase for dominance right. of the database market. Actually, in the early days, the battle to the death was between Ingress and Ingress Oracle. and Oracle. All right. And so, in 1987, we were still very much in the middle of trying to break away from Ingress. Both companies had just gone public within the last year. Both were, you know, working toward 50 million dollar revenue years. And Bill called my boss and said, we're thinking of distributing Ingress in Japan. What do you think? Oh. What do you think of the product? And kind of getting friendly advice. Uh, and obviously getting it from a competitor, he knows he's going to get any any of the warts. Right, right. About, he's going to get told about. Immediately after that call, uh, a little bit of a, a kind of a war room meeting was pulled together where John said, Ashisto has such a powerful sales organization and they are in all of the major accounts in Japan through their older, older mainframe software products, that if they take Ingress, while the products are still competitive and are competing against our two distributors in Japan right now, we will lose the market. Okay. And so we, we went into immediate war room. He said he, his answer was, Ingress is a good product, but so is Oracle. Uh, we're not sure that we're entirely happy with our distributors. We'd like you to come and take a look at Oracle as well and compare and the two before you decide which one to sell. Now, from headquarters' point of view, that's that's a great decision. It's kind of an easy decision, especially if you can convince them to sell Oracle instead. Mm-hmm. But from where you are sitting, you've got a bit of a challenge ahead of you if you've got two existing distributors who have an exclusive rights to particular platforms. So and, I, and I've spent a year building a personal relationship, relationship with, with them. them around building their trust to share. <laughs> how, how do you dance around this? How do you, how do you do this? Well, the first step, of course, was if, if we were not able to win Asisto over to our side, it was a moot question. Right. So the first step, we, we were convinced that it would be disastrous if Asisto carried Ingress and not Oracle, and that it would be uh, very good for us if we could get them to distribute Oracle. So the first thing we did is, fortunately, I'd, ha- I'd had a year working on the Japanese language stuff, spoke Japanese, Oracle was slightly ahead in the market at the time, and had a well-deserved reputation for being, between the two, the stronger sales and marketing, marketing organization. Hmm. Um, and Bill sent a couple of engineers over for a week, spent two or three days with us at Oracle, two or three days over at Ingress, and went back with the recommendation to Bill that the Ingress product looked like it was technically better. But Oracle's sales and marketing organization seemed much stronger, 
and they have an engineer who can speak and support us in Japanese. And, and they began working on Japanese language support. Uh, and so the feedback that we got from Bill to me when they decided they would prefer, if possible, to, to do a deal with us was that he believes that in the end, the stronger sales and marketing organization will win uh, in the technology space. That technology matters, but uh, how good sales selling. and marketing matters even more. And, and so that, that's he, pretty he, he much how gonna, it played out. He was going to put his bet on the stronger sales organization rather than right. the stronger technical product. So he decided to, to uh, carry Oracle exclusively he and did. not carry Ingress. He did. Okay. And so we had we we then began privately negotiating with us to, to figure out you know if we explored potentially just organizing it as a joint venture between the two companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, explored that for a bit. We kind of negotiated the basic terms of the contract. Bill told us, you know, what kinds of terms he needed in order to run a profitable business and invest for its growth. And he wanted a lower royalty rate than we were accustomed to giving. And so John came up with a creative solution that we will create an international price list uh, that sets the international price at the level where your royalty rate works for you. Uh, okay. And, but we'll price it to you on, on the standard percentage of the U.S. price list. So, by so about how much more, like what percentage more was he higher? The Oracle model at the time was, was generally to give 50% to the distributor and keep 50% for itself. Okay. And we'd, we'd base that, and the, the contracts were all based off the US list price, which Oracle controlled and could change whenever they wanted to. So the royalty rate to Oracle was always 50%. And what John did is I'll create an international price. This is 150% of the US price list and will we'll allow you We'll set that benchmark so that when you have customers asking you what the price is, you can give them the Oracle International price list, and the royalty that you pay to Oracle, even though it's in the contract 50% of the U.S. price, you can charge whatever price you want in the market. We'll give you some materials to help justify our higher price, and you can build a model where you get the 33%. That Do you think that that strategy? I mean, that, that strategy was much easier to execute back then. But do you think that it's still viable in this in this era of SaaS and? Online marketing and pricing information. Do you think companies could um, still do that? Uh, the the short answer is is yes. I'm not sure that that you can carry the same uh, discrepancy in the price that you mm -hmm. used to be able to. But company com, com, buyers in a country will always prefer to do transactions their local currency, and at at least on the level of we need to have a higher price to allow us to absorb currency fluctuations. Uh, there there's some some willingness to accept. That as a premise for a higher okay. price. Uh, also, you know, if if you if you want to buy the U.S. product from the United States and have no access to support in Japan and always do the conversation with the yes, yes, you can do that. Oh, that's true. Right, but, right. It, local it, support is local really support, critical. Local support. The Japanese language uh, capability was not yet a, st a standard feature of the product. If you want the Japanese language product, you have to buy it from a shisto. Okay. So there are a number. There are a number of things that gave them pricing power. But I think you're correct. It's it's more difficult. I'm not sure that I am aware of any companies recently that are able to maintain a 50% premium over their U.S. price in foreign markets. Okay. So, Asisto was successful. They were aggressive in selling the product into the market. What was the reaction of your existing distributors? Well, once once we'd actually sorted everything out and had the contract done with Asisto, uh, we, we knew that we had it. Before we did it, of course, we knew that we had an out. One was that the mainframe distributor had uh, quotas within their contract that they had not met. And okay. so we, we, we had the right to cancel the contract for failure to meet the agreed upon sales targets. Uh, and the digital computer limited 
were about a half a year away from a five-year optional renewal. And so we just went in with them and told them that we were not going to renew when the five years came up and that if they were willing, we'd like to simplify things in Japan by ending the contract immediately. So this was about a month after we did our made the arrangements with the Shisto. And while Shisto was still preparing their team and getting trained to be ready to go to the market, the transition timing-wise would have worked out just right. So did that end the relationship or did they become resellers well, under Assisto? That's interesting because in the, in the meetings that I had with my boss from Oracle, sitting down with them, the tone was very aggressive, no room for negotiation, no room for discussion. You missed your quota. I'm not going to hear it. Listen to any excuses, lack of Japanese quota, whatever it is. You missed the quota, letter of the law. You're right, we're out. Right. And the, the tone of the meeting for, for a Very young, American for a young, a young and friendly <laughs> engineering type like me, it was very uncomfortable to be in the meeting with my friends hearing my boss take this very hard line with them. In that same week, though, I, I forget if we had planned it in advance or if just in conversations that way, Notice, a gentleman named Notasan, who was a director at Ashisto and was the executive in charge of the work relationship, he and I went very shortly thereafter, I think maybe even immediately thereafter, visited both of the distributors again, and he said, I understand and appreciate the investment you've made in understanding Oracle, in building a pipeline, in having customers, and if you will accept it, I would like you to continue to be a second-tier distributor under us, servicing your customers, building the business, uh, recouping whatever you've invested in learning it. And he went back in and basically uh, made a very sincere effort to smooth things out. Did they end up staying on? And both of them did for a while. Okay. But Nishin Products had not had not really built up enough momentum in the business for it to be that critical to them. So I think over the, once they had finished closing the business they're already working on, they wound down their Oracle business. But Digital Computer Limited for the next 20 years, continued to be a very committed, loyal partner of Oracle. I don't think they ever got more than about a million dollars a year in sales. So the decision to switch when they were at about that a quarter right of a million, <laughs> it was a good time to switch them. But they remained very loyal, very technical, good partners for us. She's still an Oracle for many, many years. I think this illustrates one of the biggest differences between U.S. business culture, well, let's say U.S. sales culture and Japanese sales culture. U.S. culture tends to be very transactional in nature. You know, if you miss your quota, you miss it. You're done. Yeah. There, it's like you said, it's the letter of the law, where Japan is very relationship-based. Was this planned going in, or was it just the U.S. side, that's just the way they are, and they don't really care about, you know, if things are done differently in Japan, work it out in Japan, but... Well, um, first, I, I'm going to react to that and say, I, I think that characterization is true as a stereotype. Okay. That, that, that courtesy is stereotypically true. But in fact, subsequent to work, when we've brought additional companies into Japan, Salesforce, Concur, Marketo, one of the key things that I have looked for in choosing a company to bring into Japan, of course, the momentum they have in the United States, the quality of the team, the, quality of the, the likely success of the U.S. company is critical. But I have met with numerous companies that I have chosen not to pursue a relationship with specifically because my perception is that the executives tend to have that what you care is an American transactional attitude towards their business. Okay. Uh, and I have always opted to engage with a company where the executive leadership seemed to have more of a relational, relate, long-term relationship, uh, mutual benefit, uh, a balanced approach to building powerful long-term relationships um, in their attitude and their approach to engaging with us. 
partly because I think it will be a better fit for the Japanese market, but mostly because those are the people I'd rather work with. Right. And, and I've also seen, uh, I've seen Japanese companies and Japanese people who behave in a very transactional, uh, American that's, way. So, yeah, that's so, fair I, I, think, I think, I think, I think it's kind of stereotypical, but, but, uh, in my experience, I would say, in general, the companies that are successful in Japan are ones that either as a culture have more of a long-term building value together relationship approach to how they engage with partners and customers than a very straightforward money-for-value transactional approach. Okay. So ones where, that, what's, where that's kind of built into the culture work, alternatively... Oracle certainly did not have that kind of culture, but my personality was such. And, and so in the case of Oracle, I think the fact that my orientation was that way and I was the person that was assigned to think about and work with the folks in Japan uh, was was helpful in uh, when there were transactional kinds of conversations to, for the, me then to go back and pre and post those, manage the relationship and, right. and show the long-term commitment of me as a person, as a representative of Oracle, to the relationship, even if sometimes the conversations with people from headquarters are more transactional. That makes sense. So if there was a, a necessary shift in style between mm-hmm. headquarters and Japan, were there any changes to the marketing or the product itself beyond just uh, localization? That's, that's actually an interesting one. That was one, one of my biggest frustrations in the early days with Ashisto is that um, Oracle had developed in the United States a very finely tuned uh, go-to-market strategy, which in the software industry today is almost common sense. At the time, it was very innovative. So Tom Siebel, who later started Siebel Systems and created the software category of CRM, at the time in Oracle, was in charge of the telesales and telemarketing group. Mm-hmm. And Oracle had a program where we would send out, it was pre-email days, so we would, we would take advertisements in the industry press talking about 30 or 40 seminars we were going to do around the United States and to take registrations by telephone for these seminars. And we would send out uh, invitation fly letters to people on the mailing list of these magazines and so we had, had a program to cause people to call in and sign up to come to an Oracle introductory seminar. And when they would call in, we would ask fairly extensive qualifications questions to the point where if I had been on the receiving end of them, I probably would have hung up halfway through. I said, I, I, I really? just come to one of your seminars. It's like, do you have budget allocated? What other products are you looking at? Who's your decision maker? What are your application you're looking at? Wow. This was all in order to be able to register to come to a, a <laughs> seminar where I was going to tell you about okay. the product. So there was a very thorough pre-qualification process before ever, before anyone ever sat in a room and heard the general Oracle story so that when people came to the seminar, uh, we knew who in the room was a serious prospect who was also looking at a competitor. We knew who was there just to learn and didn't, didn't really matter from a sales point of view. You'd have very focused conversations in the break times with the people that you knew were the, were the highly probable. Uh, so this, this whole process of how, how we used advertising, direct mail, uh, telesales qualifi- telemarketing qualifications, seminars, uh, telesales follow-up, field lead allocations, the whole kind of lead pipeline management process that's very common in the industry today. As far as I know, it pretty much originated with Larry and Tom Siebel back at Oracle in the 1980s. And joining Oracle fresh out of college and, and having heard over and over again about this wonderful program, the, the Oracle way of marketing, uh, I, I was totally bought into the Kool-Aid. And I, and I still, you know, you know the, the industry has shifted. I still think it was a very creative and very efficient way 
to build uh, a sales pipeline. And, and I, th I think, I think, I think that, that process itself was, was almost certainly fundamental to the fact to the org's ability to double its revenues every year for 11 years. The efficiency of that whole pipeline sales process yeah. uh, was a, was a key element of that, of that growth. But, um, she still had a different way. So I had, I'd lived in the United States for, and come to Japan on business trips for the first year when we were working with two distributors. When we decided to, uh, have Ashisto become our distributor, I had seen enough and heard enough excuses from the previous distributors about why they weren't selling more. And mm -hmm. in each of the meetings when we were canceling the contracts, a number of reasons were given. Well, this is why we're not selling more, uh, to try and persuade John that, uh, we should continue with the distributors. And what I realized in those meetings is that neither John nor I had a clue which of the reasons they were giving us for Oracle's failure in Japan were serious problems that if we did not resolve them would make it impossible for us to be successful even with a new distributor assisto, and which of them were just excuses for their own inadequacies. Right. So I had I had I had no basis, and John had no basis upon which to evaluate the issues they were raising about why Japan, why we're not selling more in Japan. And so in, in that context and in the context of negotiating with Ashisto, I said, you know, I, I know I, when I joined the company, I said, I don't want to live in Japan. I just want to work with Japan from California. I think I should move to Japan for a year or two with Ashisto until, and understand what's really going on and, and treat them almost as if they were a subsidiary, give them access to information and kind of be part of the team while they're getting off the ground so that it. I, I think that is, that is a problem so many, so many companies still face with their Japanese subsidiary. It's a bit of a black box and it's it is until you move here and actually are selling it yourself it's very hard to know what is a legitimate cultural or market difference and yeah. what is just salesmen making an excuse and 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 sometimes there are things that are legitimate problems that you can you can push back and you can actually resolve them locally sometimes there are things that need the engagement of headquarters and understanding of headquarters to resolve so mm -hmm. I, I think that's true it's, it's very difficult i think for any branch even even if it was Sydney or London, I think the, the physical remoteness and, and the infrequency of direct contact, even in a same, similar business culture and same language culture, uh, it's often difficult to understand what the real issues are far away from hmm. that office. But with, with the addition of differences in business culture and language and it makes it that much harder. Culture, it makes it that much harder with Japan to tease out those differences. And so you either, you either have to hope that you've hired a competent leader or engaged with a competent partner and take what they say at face value and trust them and, and do what they say they need or second guess everything they tell you. And, uh, and that never ne ends neither, well. neither is really, uh, the truth. Yeah. So when you came here, did you try the, the Oracle playbook in Japan? So we did. So yeah, back to that, back to the, that question. So, when, once we had gotten Ashisto on board, you know, I'd heard what a great sales company they are. They clearly seem to understand you know, how you go about selling software. I moved to Japan and physically located myself in the office with them. And what I wanted to do more than anything was to get them doing this, this Oracle way. This tried and true. Try it in, this tried and true Oracle way of marketing. And I, I, I spent a fair amount of time explaining how, how we do it, how it works, why it's so wonderful. And one of the first things is, well, the Japanese computer magazines don't give out their mailing lists, so we can't send any direct mail to people in the mailing lists. And 
was the first thing. And so I told headquarters, I said, well, we can get it from Computer World anywhere. We spend so much advertising with Computer World, they'll give it us anywhere in the world, and I bet you can get it. And so I called them, and sure enough, we could get the Computer World. Mail All right. I said, well, Computer World will do it for us. And so that that objection was ticked off. And and so I think we, we did some advertising in Computer World and did a mailer to them. And another part of the Oracle way was that it was done in major cities all around the world. So people could just go out to a local hotel ballroom and hear about Oracle. And I said, well, we should like, we should go to Sapporo and Tohoku and, and do one in Osaka, Tokyo and yeah. Yokohama and Osaka and Fukuoka and Niigata and now do it. Do we should go on this road show? Like, or, and every, every quarter be in each city. And, and, and of course, you know, we have, we have this lovely office here right in Toronomon and there, uh, and there's so many people here in Tokyo and we would like them to come to our office and see that we're a credible company uh-huh. and get comfortable with buying from us. And so we want them to come to us. And the Oracle way is, is you want them in a neutral place where they don't feel the pressure of being in your office uh, in that initial encounter. So in and we, we, ended up, we ended up doing it. We ended up, we ended up doing it in the Assisto adapted way. But for the three years that I was working with them, we tried, we did get them with pressure from, uh, for a year or so, I think Japan was reporting into Australia. And Australia, better than any other country in the world in Oracle, really, really lived by that, that marketing method. way. Uh-huh. And, the, and the managing director from Australia said, I'm going to come up to Japan, we're going to do it the right way once. And we rented, rented a hall in the Hotel Okura, did it one time, the way he said, but you know, then he was off, and as used to was sort of back to their their method was cold calling, lots of lots of FaceTime, visiting customers, visiting their existing customers. So now this is interesting. It's so a very were, very active face in face to face visit your office. But they were getting results with this, right? I mean, they were. So so one of the things that was really really puzzling, the other another thing that was really puzzling to me in the earlier days with Oracle is I was trained in my new employee training how to. Ask a customer what they're trying to build with the product and develop overnight a partial prototype of what they're trying to do. Mm. So that as a, as a system engineer, when you, and your second call when you go with the customer, you actually show them with some sample data and a few data entry screens and reports what they could do with Oracle addressing the problem they specifically want to address. Sure. So it's overnight. Yeah. So they think, wow, he did this overnight. This wow, is he did this overnight. It's very, very, it's very, yeah, it's going to be, it must be very productive. And, and that was, that was the way I was trained to sell with Oracle. Well, and I, I tried a few times to go along with the sales reps from, I'd go on calls together with them. And I, w- I would go in and the sales rep would say, hello, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Saki, so nice to see you again. We're carrying, or we're carrying this new product called Oracle now. It's a relational database. Yeah, I'm not really sure what it does, but would you please buy one? <laughs> it was sort of, and he just, he essentially, and that worked? Well, obviously overstating it, oversimplifying it, but essentially he would go into uh, people that he'd been visiting for many times, had sold software to before. And because Ashisto had such a good reputation for support, and come into his products, he would just go in and beg for an order. And a few weeks later, he'd have an order. And I'd, I'd not done any demonstrations. We hadn't had any conversations about what they could actually do with Oracle. So it was purely somehow, on the strength of the relationship. Somehow the strength of the relationship and the trust that they had for Ashisto was so powerful that this salesperson who had net, who had only been selling to IBM customers, for his first problem was he didn't know where, they were, where, where are the faxes in Japan. So, I, I, so this was the first time that Ashisto was doing something out of the IBM mainframe space. And because deck computers were mostly used in factories and uh, laboratories at the time, Asisto had no connection. So part of, part of his challenge was figuring out 
how to how to get into the depart departments that they were sold to within customers where there was somebody who could vet who could uh, verify that yeah, this was a credible good company to buy from. Okay. So so that that was that was stunning to me that just going in and begging for the business. But looking could close back contracts. In, in retrospect now, knowing everything you know now. Assisto's Japanese methods are yielding results. They're yeah. they're getting sales. It's growing. Yeah. Headquarters has has their way. Mm-hmm. How much of this conflict was simply each side wanting to do things their way, and how mm. much of it was really you should do what works, and this will improve things? I think there was some of both, uh, and I think in in the end, uh, the reason that it was it was frustrating, but it never got out of hand. That they weren't doing the Oracle way was never close to being a relationship breaker for oh, okay. us. It was it was frustrating because we all believed they'd be so much more productive and so much more efficient if they would do it that way, uh, but they didn't want to. And in the end, we our our basic operating principle at Oracle in the time is how much did you sell last year? Multiply it by two. That's your quota for next year, and figure out how to do it. And because uh, Ashisto was successfully doubling in size every year uh, and meeting the commitments they had made in the contracts to us, doing it their way, and because uh, Oracle was growing well enough and Ashisto was building a good enough reputation for us in the marketplace, we were able to continue adding relationships with Fujitsu and NEC and Hitachi and continuing to build out the hardware manufacturer system integrator relationships that we wanted to uh, we were able to keep growing the business uh, by 100. percent So the results year. do speak. So for the themselves. results, the results, I th- by delivering on their commitments, Asisto gained you know, quite a bit of uh, trust and flexibility. To even though I'm not sure I ever understood why it worked as well as it did <laughs> for them, and even though right up to the day that we moved to the subsidiary stage of our business. I remained frustrated that I couldn't I couldn't find the secret sauce to convince them that the Oracle way would be so much more productive for them. So uh, the did you find was, you, you spent more of your time explaining to headquarters why the assist way was working and you should let them kind of customize it? Or did you no, spend no, no. more time trying to convince assist that the Oracle way is the way to go and you should really give it a no, try? No, I, I, th- I think I spent most of my time making sure that Assisto felt like they were part of the family. Oh. That I, whenever I would go to headquarters, I would wander around and pick up every piece of new collateral or, or marketing information that was available. I, I took a very open attitude to how much information I would share with them at what stage. And it, from my point of view, the more I could treat them in the way that we treated our subsidiaries, the more likely they would be able to, to be successful. So mo- most of the time I spent was making sure that they got access to what they felt like they needed, that I was proactively telling them what, what was coming down the line so they could get prepared. Relationship building. Uh, it, yeah, it was basically relationship building. Yeah. And, and then because I was this Japanese-speaking American in a day where there aren't that many in Japan, they'd have me go out and do seminars and things with customers. As sort of uh, uh, Bill Totten's not the only strange gaijin we have. In, in <laughs> get another company. one. We've got, we've got one from Oracle, too. <laughs> okay. But now with, with, this, with this success... Oracle is about to make an, another transition. You, you've transitioned away from your original distributors, yep. and that worked surprisingly well. Yeah. And now, how do you transition from the distributor to a subsidiary arrangement? Okay, well, let's start with why. So, 
we had gone from uh, $250,000 in revenues the year that I joined Oracle to about $10 million a year, uh, uh, four years later. And Ashisto had come to the end of their initial contractual commitment of we're going to do a million in sales, then two million in sales, then four million. And, and uh, we were trying to get their heads around how they could double the size of their organization from 60 people to 120 in one year and how they could go from $4 million to $8 million in revenues in one year. And we felt that part of the way they would do that is to begin to carry the Oracle accounting package and the Oracle manufacturing package. Oh, so okay. Oracle had by then had just, just released its first version of its, of its uh, applications packages as, uh, as, you, as we were going through the discussions with us about, well, what's next after what's in the contract? And they had had a very uh, unpleasant and unsuccessful experience with an accounting package software for mainframes previously. Mm -hmm. And were convinced, as I think many, many people still are in Japan, that Japan is predominantly not a package software world, but a custom-built uh, software world, and that even many of the SAP applicants are highly customized yeah. in Japan. So Ashisto was convinced with significant evidence that I think is still significantly true today that uh, generic application packages uh, were too hard a business to get off the ground in Japan. And they were, and so as DCL had originally not been interested in the mainframe products, Ashisto was not interested in carrying the application products. And, and was that the leverage or the excuse you kind of used to this say was, we need this to was expand? The so, so I had, from, from, the, from the day... I began the relationship with Ashisto. I had always been telling them, at some point in the future, in Oracle's natural evolution, we will create a subsidiary in Japan. Okay. And our, our international strategy always will have that as the end game. So you were managing those expectations. And so from, from the, the very, very beginning, from the very beginning, I said, you know, this this is this is just the way we work. And I want you to know that what I what I hope happens is that when that time comes, we'll all know each other so well that that a very real possibility is that we work with Asisto to have this Asisto organization become the Oracle subsidiary in Japan, if that's mutually interesting. He said, alternatively, what I promise to you is that I'll treat you, I'll see you get treated the same way that you treat a DCL and Nishin when we switch to you, so that you can continue to build your business in, in the Oracle family uh, after you do it. And were they were they amenable to that? Or uh, was it? I, I think the honest feeling, for, certainly from notice on, is, yeah, go ahead and do it when you want. SAS tried to did it and fail. We've had many companies try to leave us and fail, and there's no, uh. and you'll, you'll, you'll just be less profitable, and you won't be able to do it as well as we went. So I, I think, I think there was, there had been enough cases where companies had done that and it had not worked out well. All right. And they had regretted it. Well, it makes sense in Japan. They own those <clears throat> relationships. Yeah, they right? do. Right. They do, and and very very often the transition from from distributor to a subsidiary is handled badly and kills the business. Um, so I, I think on one level they wondered how serious we were. On another, uh, I had been assuring them that I wanted to continue the relationship. I'd spent three years building a deep personal relationship with all of them. Uh, but but we, what we also did, I, I informed them when I began interviewing candidates for the new the subsidiary CEO role. Uh, it was about a nine, ten month process before we finally found someone that I thought was the right guy. But the way that I had envisioned coming into Japan without introducing too much conflict in the marketplace initially was that Oracle believed the applications business was going to be as big as its database business. I still didn't want to do that. They had a good growing database business. Um, this transition was all about what can we do to get the total business in Japan to double. 
And even if the applic- even if the database business grows only 60%, if we can add applications on top of that, and, and as long as the total business is doubling, I'm doing my job. Okay. And so the, 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 the basic premise for creating the subsidiary and hiring the CEO was to create uh, a subsidiary that would roll out the Oracle applications in Japan. All right. And, and not be in conflict with Ashisto. So they didn't have any stake in the subsidiary at no. all? Or? Okay. No, we, we talked about it a little bit, um, but they did not. All right. And uh, they actually, actually, because in our early conversations with them, we had talked about maybe setting up the original distributorship, the joint venture. We had allowed them to use the name Kabushiki Gaishi Orakuru for, oh. for their wholly owned subsidiary that was a distributor for Oracle. So there was an, inter- an interesting twist on uh, we had we had allowed them to leverage the brand as if it were their own in building the business initially. Now, did they transfer that back ultimately, to you out of yeah. goodwill? Ultimately, it's ultimately right. we we had a, we ultimately we did yeah. Okay. So one year after the search started, uh, Sano-san from IBM joined as the CEO, and for the first two months that we were working, I had him I had Ashisto set aside some desks for him and the other three or four initial employees to work with easy access to the Shisto people and build that relationship and talk wow, to so talk to him, talk to him about you know, the importance it was for me to treat Noda the way he'd treated the distributors in the past and to continue to let them build the build their business and we build ours. So assist was supportive. It sounds like they were supportive and cooperative through well, this I, I think, whole process. I think they re- they realized that there was there was nothing they could do to prevent us from creating a subsidiary. And because I had assured them and done everything I could to try to make it a forward step for both of us, rather than a rather than taking away their business and replacing it with a, a organization built from scratch, uh, they were they were quite cooperative, quite mature and cooperative through the whole process. Do you think that's um, a typical result of of that? Uh, I think it's very unusual. Yeah, I do as well. <laughs> um, what what makes it particularly interesting and unusual is that. Within a couple of months of joining, Sano-san very astutely and correctly uh, realized that because at the time, Oracle was actually tied for number two, possibly number three, in market share for relational databases in Japan. Uh, The reason being that when Informix, a second-tier competitor, and Unify, a third-tier competitor in the United States, had come in, they had just given the source code to the says, you know, we don't don't want to deal with Japan, we don't know anything about it. And Informix was carried by a company, ASCII, which, along with SoftBank, was the premier personal computer software company in the 1980s in Japan. And they did an amazing job localizing the product, selling it, marketing it. Uh, and so Informix was far and away the number one relational database product in Japan in 1990 when Sanosan joined. Even after we'd gotten our business $10 million in revenues by 1990, Informix was bigger. And Unify, which was almost a non-player in the United States, had also uh, done a deal with a small distributor that was very committed. But both of them had built good, very good, solid uh, Japanese language implementations about three years, been in the market about three years before right. Oracle, had finally rolled out our Japanese version. So he, he realized we're not number one in Japan. Compared to Informix and Unify in the United States, we're, we're huge. It's like it's not even a question who is dominant in database. Ingress is not here yet. And the, he realized that the only reason we were getting people to take a serious look at our accounting and manufacturing package in the United States is because we owned their database. Right. And so it was an easy, you know, drop this application from the database vendor on top of the platform. It was like, like buying an application software from IBM in the old days. The, plat- the, the platform had shifted from the hardware to the middleware. 
And well, you know, we were using your database, what we use your applications to. So he, re he realized that without dominance in database in the same way that we had it in the United States by then, he did not really have a solid footing from which to sell the applications. So, so the key was because, getting dominance in the database. So, so he, he very quickly made the correct decision that what the subsidiary was going to focus on was building the database business. But because he'd gotten to know the folks at Ashisto uh, and realized there was plenty of market for us to address without having to step on them, um, we basically designed a model where our goal was to capture about 50% of the Oracle database business in Japan through our direct sales efforts, mm -hmm. and the remaining 50% always, forever, through channels. Through channels. And to, to always have this two-tier, two two-pronged approach to the market where we were in winning the accounts that were strategically critical, either because they were large or because they were building a, an application that was going to be rolled out to many locations, and to never to never lose a critical deal, and when possible, to bring in by then Fujitsu, Itachi, and EC were all partners. NTD Data was a partner. Ashisto, of course, was a critical partner. DCL was still a partner. So we had multiple partners that we could bring in to help get leverage in individual deals and in the marketplace, and built a really really powerful uh, joint go-to-market model with the channels that that kept Ashisto growing. Ashisto continued to be the largest distributor for Oracle outside of Oracle for some 10 years after so we came just, That makes perfect sense from like a marketing and positioning point of view. But mm -hmm. usually when these relationships go, go bad and what makes these difficult, these transitions difficult, a lot of it is those relationships. It's a lot of yeah. like personal focus. And so looking back on it, was, was there any one or two things that you guys did right that you can point to and say, oh, doing X made this transition so much easier? I, th I think one one was the fact that I'd, I'd happened to have the insight that I should spend a little bit of time in Japan understanding what was going on. And as a consequence of that, ended up staying for many years, building deep personal relationships with, with my coworkers at the distributor. Oh, okay. So I think, I think the fact that I, w I was one point of continuity in the relationships through all three transitions, that, that I think was, was helpful. And then the fact that not only was I continuous, but for a good part of that, I was physically in Japan interacting with all the players regularly. So um, the, the relationship with you and their trust with you kind of extended kind of to Oracle. Helped, I think helped, helped to keep every, everything moving smoothly and, and, but the, the other thing, of course, uh, once, once we'd hired the CEO and it was Sano-san's business to build fundamentally in the way that he wanted and the way that Oracle wanted, he was perfectly free to ignore my advice and cancel the relationship with us he wanted, or perfectly free to let his sales reps, whenever a deal was discovered, take the deal and close it as an Oracle deal for their commission rather than letting the partners close it. But he, but he, he maintained on that. multiple on multiple occasions, I remember him scolding a sales rep for working a deal and presenting a deal internally as if it were his own that he'd heard elsewhere had actually been curated by one of the hardware manufacturer partners or by Ashisto. Okay, so he was and actively so protecting he, he was, was actively short -term actively revenue. actively protecting prioritizing Part, if a partner had been working the account before we got into it, he would actively make sure that they got the business at the end of the day. We've Which, talked about this before, yeah. about how Japan, especially enterprise sales, is really a channels game. Yeah. So you're saying that 
even well after that, Oracle was doing 50% of its its sales in Japan through channels and 50% direct. And that that was the original goal that we set out was to take it from 100% indirect to 50/50. I don't think it ever got below 80% channel. Really? Yeah. And that's very unusual for Oracle globally. In the initial meeting with Sanosan and the new international VP flew to Japan. We had our first planning meeting. We laid out the plan for the first 18 months of business. And we said, well, we think we're going to try and, and get this to be at a 50-50 indirect direct business model. He said, that's fine. I'm not going to question that. But be very careful because Oracle is a complex product and your partners will like, anytime something goes wrong, they'll likely blame Oracle and you may lose your reputation in the marketplace. Go ahead and do that, but be careful. And I think everywhere else in the, I don't think anywhere else in the world was doing more than three or four percent oh, wow. of business through, through partners. Most of the business was two partners in terms of prepaid licenses or sales rights and things. And not a lot of business through partners. Or it was very, 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 very oriented toward, uh, aggressive direct sales and direct markets. So now that, Oracle is is back in control of its own destiny in Japan. Was the go-to-market similar to the global playbook, or was it more like assist? So, so as we were going through this process of hiring the CEO, I said, "Finally, I'm going to have I'm going to have somebody who's an Oracle person, and we can do we can finally do the Oracle marketing way in Japan." And I, I was so excited about that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Have, coming from engineering, I don't know why. Don't know why the Oracle marketing method was such a such a <laughs> thing I cared about. But uh, even with that. In, in that first year, in that very first 18 month plan, I think we were going, we were expecting to go from 10 to 20 million, or no, maybe, maybe we're coming off of five and going to 10 was the goal that year. And Sanosan in his budget had put a $1 million marketing budget. And as we were talking about, you know, what were the plans for marketing? He says, we're going to, we're going to, this, and this was a couple months after he'd kind of figured out already that, that dominating database was the most important thing. And he said, in the spring, after we've got a few partners, I've, I've gotten to know the lay of the land, we're going to spend $1 million on a single event in Tokyo. We're going to invite all of our partners and try and get a couple thousand people to come to this and do something that looks like we're so much bigger than Informix and everybody else that it, look, it looks like it correlates to the size that Oracle is worldwide. So, so almost the whole budget is on this one... So the whole wow. budget is on one event. That's risky. It's one event. And part of the budget was $300,000 to take out a full two-page ad in Nikkei newspaper once a week for three weeks leading up to the event. A lot of effort to get people in the seats. The, the, the Sano way of marketing is make people say, wow. All right. Make people, uh, if they're not doing this, they're some, they're following, falling behind the movement. So today in San Francisco, Oracle Open World and Dreamforce are infamous for making San Francisco overcrowded and impossible to get uh, yes, around exactly. for, <laughs> for two weeks every fall. Well, you can blame Sanosan and Oracle Japan for that. So Oracle Because World Oracle, Oracle, with... Oracle Open right. World, Oracle Open World actually started in Japan. And it was because, you know, so we, we, we spent a million dollars, everything on one event to make people say, wow, Oracle is much bigger than I thought. Flew Larry over for a presentation, rented the Royal Park Hotel ballroom. Uh, so at least he did it in the ballroom. And we did do direct mail and lots of practical people to get people into the room. So there was a seminar and there was a lot of effort to get people into the room, but it was not a regular cadence, you know, 30 people in a room, intimate. And there was no, there was none of the telemarketing pre-qualification stuff that was part of that. That never really took off. So it was just, it was an event. It was an event. It was event marketing. 
And a couple of years later, uh, we all went to the Oracle user conference. There was a user conference every year in Oracle. And, and by the second year, I think, that, that Sanosan was with the company, there were about 6,000 people that came to the Oracle user conference. And that was, that was what Oracle did. We did it. We invited the users in. There were user presentations. We'd talk about what new products are coming that you can expect next year. And it was kind of an intimate thing with the customers. We went to that and we came home and Sanosan and the, the very ambitious sales VP said, what can we do in Japan that can be a bigger event than Oracle's user conference? How, <laughs> how can, how in Japan, when we only have a few hundred users, can we, can, how can we get 6,000 or more people in a room? And so we spent a, a while brainstorming, and the conclusion was, first, first conclusion, there are, we don't have that many users, so we, it can't be users only. So users and prospects and anybody that wants to learn about Oracle All should right. be invited to come. So we'll open it up to, to be a marketing event for prospects, much like the very first event that we did. But even that's not going to be enough. So what we should do is not call it an Oracle event per se, but open systems was beginning to be very much in, in the press and, and Sun Microsystems really had popularized that. And so let, let, let's make the statement in Japan that Oracle is not just the relational database, but we are the leader of the movement to open systems. So kind of co-op. So let's, let's own, let's own the open systems movement and, and invite all of the open systems partners, all the software vendors talk about how open systems are better than and proprietary mainframes and how the world is moving in this direction. And this approach and was make, unique to it, Japan. Right? This, this, this was Sano-san and Kumasaka-san figuring out, well, how can we get more than 6,000 people in the room? So <laughs> it, it boiled down, it boiled down to a Mark Benioff-like, how can we do a huge event that raises a lot of attention? People say, wow, Oracle, Oracle is so influential and big. So we rented the Yokohama Pacifico Convention Center. We had contests for our distributors. We had numbered tickets, and whichever distributor gave the most tickets that came to, whose customers came to the show, would get a free ticket to take two people to the next year's Oracle User Conference in California. We right. literally, we literally had people passing out tickets to people getting off the train station in Sakuragi Cho. Oh there's, this, there's this amazing event <laughs> just, over at, you, just to get the you ought to go. So we had, we had high school students <laughs> and mothers oh uh, coming to it. Uh, and there were about 10,000 people that showed up for this. We'd planned for 6,000. You could not walk through the trade show area. Every session was overbooked and standing room only. I think that experience of seeing those crowds making it impossible to move from booth to booth in the trade flow area, right. trade show area of Pacific, of the convention center is exactly what Mark is now replicating with Dreamforce in downtown San Francisco every year. So how do we do something that's bigger than a user conference? rebranding it, renaming it, making it something bigger. And then the standing room only, you can't walk through the trade show. It was again, so wow. We've got to pay attention to this. How come there are so many people interested in Oracle? And so after that, every year it was like, how many more thousand can we get? And I think by the third year, one of the things that Mark does at Dreamforce and Oracle Open World does in California now is there's always a rock concert night. Right. So the third year, <laughs> we're thinking, bigger, well, how can we? How, so we had to, we had to, had to move to Makuhari Mese after a couple of years, and I said, so how can we get twenty thousand people to come to this thing? And and Sano says, well, I think we need to do a rock concert <laughs> and count <laughs> and count 
count people who just come to the rock concert as part of the attendees. So we had Tetsuya Komuro do a rock concert at the venue on the first night of the two-day event and counted people who came to the rock concert as part of the attendees to get to, I think, 50,000. So, so is that, that strategy still kind of the backbone of the market? Um, well, it continued for some time after Sanosan in Japan. And, and I, I, we didn't, we didn't continue to try everything we could do to grow the numbers. I think, I think the last year that, that there was a deliberate brainstorming, what, what crazy new things can we do this year to get more people? I think the, the Komuro concert was the last year that, that, uh, that was a key part of the strategy. All right. Planning for it. And by then, the business itself had grown enough that we had enough users and prospects. We actually could have ten or twenty thousand people come to an Oracle event just to actually talk about Oracle and learn about, <laughs> learn about the applications and everything that's going to Oracle. But Mark, in his informative years of experience, kind of saw that whole evolution in Japan, how it got bigger and bigger every year, and how Oracle had opened up. And then maybe about the, after the third year in the United States, Oracle stopped doing the user conference and switched to Oracle Open World and. You have Yokohama Pacifico uh, and Oracle Open World overcrowding there to right. for what, what happens with Dreamforce. And okay. By the time we did them the second time, I just, you know, Sano-san got his own way. It's brilliant. It works in Japan. I, I finally you know, gave up uh, trying to do the Oracle marketing way right. because the business was growing well. We were becoming famous and successful in Japan. I, I think it took us a couple of years to finally catch up and pass Informix in uh, market share in Japan. But Sanosan had a very different way of marketing. And actually, if you, Oracle still does the, you know, lead qualification, telesales, telemarketing. They still do the old Oracle marketing way, although you don't see advertisements to come out to a seminar and, but you do, you still actually, the part of the first 15 years of Oracle marketing still exists is the huge Oracle Open World event okay. that actually originated in Japan. Excellent. So that's great. At this point, <clears throat> the, the, Market entry is a success, and you've got a Japanese subsidiary just growing steadily on their own power. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, kind of looking back on it, sort of a, a couple of personal questions. Sure. What did you think was the most challenging thing for you personally, mm. kind of being stuck as that center point mm. between the Japanese entity and the U.S. entity? Mm. Except with Mark Benioff, it was always hard to get people in the product organization to design in the Japanese country requirements and Japanese language ah. so Sometimes, sometimes the executives would in principle want to do it and would say the right things and seemed to sincere, but when push comes to shove, the, the, pri- the pressure, the, the development is always delayed. There's always pressure to roll out some new set of features that a critical customer in the US is demanding. And the, the Japanese language support was almost never prioritized in early in the development cycle. It was always sort of, uh, once we finished building these critical new features that Larry has promised to the marketplace, we'll, yes, we will build Japanese into this world, release of the product, clipping and slipping. And now some customers in the US that are important are beginning to get angry because it's slipping. And uh, I'm sorry, Jim, we're going to have to wait till the next week. So that, well, that how did you solve of, it? How, what did you do about that? Well, the, the first thing I did to solve it almost got me fired. <laughs> Uh, when I, when I had been building the Japanese language version in Oracle, I, I finished the coding in 1987, just as we were having a conversation with Ashisto, and it was supposed to be integrated into the Oracle version 5.0 release of the product. And that didn't happen, you know, I was about four months in the company, and then about after about my year anniversary, 5.1 was going to be released, and it was going to be there. And it didn't happen again. 
And, you know, I, I was all, it was all teed up, coded, ready to go. And I had, I had built relationships with people in development. So they knew who I was and there'd been conversations coming to do it. And what, as we'd get close to the release date and it hadn't been integrated in and I, they'd been having me wait and wait. And finally, then this, this conversation is just mentioned of, you know, we've got to ship it now. Next release it happened twice in one year. And so part of my decision when I uh, came to help uh, Ashisto in Japan is because part of my job in Oracle International was to, to provide technical support to the hardware manufacturer OEMs who had received an Oracle porting kit, which essentially was uncommented source code and a little bit of documentation about what you need to tweak to make it work on a, an iteration of Unix. Ah, uh, okay. So Toshiba had a copy of that in Japan. Uh, DCL actually had a copy of that in Japan. That's how they were able to build their Japanese prototype. ICL and Bull had copies of it in Europe, and I was supporting all these people. And because of my job to get the localization working, I had access to the source code. I had access to the commented source code. Uh, knowing that there was uncommented source code called a porting kit in place in Japan, uh, and knowing that I would be so much more efficient or anybody much more efficient at coding and continuing to enhance the Japanese if we had comments, I secretly dumped the entire Oracle code base with comments, brought it to Japan. Oh, wow. Installed it on a VAX computer, had a Shisto buy a microvax. We installed it, and one of their engineers went right to work on integrating all the Japanese so into a locally built. I just did it without permission. I took it without permission, and at one point, after I'd been in Japan maybe five or six months with Ashisto, we pretty much had it ready to work, but the engineer who was working on it had, in the meantime, been doing support. We'd had technical support questions and interactions with the international team at headquarters, and one one day, he sent a, a fax, who was still not even those faxes, yeah. sent a fax to headquarters, I found this comment in the code, uh, what does this mean, what is this doing? And he, he, so oh. he asked a question that referenced the comments, uh, and that, that then triggered, hmm, hmm, there's commented source code in Japan. And of course, John, my boss, immediately knew how it had gotten there. And he, he called me and said, Alan, did you take commented source code with you when you went to Japan? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, you're not supposed to, yeah, I know. And he said, well, this is how I found out. And I had to tell, of course, I had to tell Larry right away. And he screamed at me. And technically, I, I should have, to, I should have to fire you. But I understand why you did it. And I explained to Larry why you did it. And you must never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and no code is, no source code or portraits are ever to go outside of Oracle headquarters without Larry's personal permission. So if anything like this ever happens again, you will be fired. But I've, I've gone to bat for you this one time. So he said, you, you, you may leave it there now. And it must stay there on, it's still where you are. You don't, don't ever do anything like that again. So, and, and I, I knew, I knew that if I were to ask Larry for permission to take the Vax code to Japan, because the relationship with Ashisto was brand new, he would have said uh, no. It's a distributor. They they haven't paid us licensing fees for it. You know, he actually would have said no. If I hadn't done it, we would not have had a Vax product to sell. For it wasn't until version seven, two years into the subsidiary, uh, four years later, before Oracle headquarters finally had an integrated product that went out of the door with Japanese. And in the meantime, the, the uh, there was a team in the international division that was helping with port. We had a team in Korea, and I had a team in Japan who were porting the Japanese version of Oracle created in Japan onto all the platforms that Oracle was doing the English porting for in the United States. That decision to do something that I, to this day, believe was morally right and necessary, and, and in terms of business judgment, 
correct and necessary, but legally illegal. Yeah. And, you know, potentially uh, could have cost me my job. You, know, I, you can get away with a move like that once. Well, I'm not, you can't. Not, yeah. and, and I, I'm sure that if, if it had not been John Luongo there going about for if if someone else had reported, if I had not had, if I hadn't spent a year with John to saying, I'm ready, but I can't get it rolled in. And so he, he knew that I had been ready to build this out for a while. My relationship with John, and he'd seen what I'd been doing up to that time to make it, make it happen the proper way that I think, I think made him willing to go to bat for me. But he understood, um, yeah, he, he understood, understood the rationale. He, un- he understood me as a person. He, we'd by then gotten to know the Asisto group as a, as, as a team well enough. And I had physically located myself in Asisto that, you know, the whole collection of things made him willing to go to bat for me. Um, but subsequent to that, I didn't, I was not able to get access to all the applications <laughs> code, for example, or, <laughs> imagine that, or other, other, other products. So after that, then it began and it be, became sort of an ongoing process of trying to convince people. To, and, and Mark Benioff, to his credit, was the only product executive in my history with Oracle, who from the beginning of designing a product, he's, he brought me into his office and he said, I have this really cool object-oriented tool that I'm building right now. You, you should see it. And he had his engineer show it to me. And I says, oh, that's really cool. You know what else would be cool? If this is the first product that ever, ever goes out the door from Oracle with Japanese language built in, it's object-oriented. You should be able to do it. And he said, yeah, yeah, do it. Said, sit down sit down with Roberts and tell him what he needs to do. So I sat down with his engineer and said, well, showed it, showed it got it working on a, on a Japanese piece. And so here's where it breaks. And, and we'll send an engineer over to help you do it and keep trying and working. And, and ultimately, the way Oracle ended up solving the problem is we sent a fairly large contingent of engineers. I think ultimately it was about 70 people. Once, once the Japanese community was six or seven hundred, but we had a group of Oracle Japan employees in technical support in different developer organizations, all of whom were tasked with uh, either high priority bug fixing for critical customers uh, or you know ongoing maintenance and enhancement of Japanese language features in different products. So, so we Japanese, essentially had Japan's to send we sent, we sent Japanese engineers, paid for them, send them to the headquarters, and the development organization headquarters were, were willing to integrate these Japanese engineers into their development organizations. So obviously you don't recommend that. that I don't recommend that. Recommend that move. But, uh, but in, in, that, in that case, I did, I did not see any other way yeah. to avoid one year later having the same conversation we had to do. We don't have a Japanese product. We can't sell without a Japanese product. Because that, that excuse they were making, that made sense to me. That, that that would be, especially in a world where Informix and Unify were both in the market with good Japanese products, to yeah. not have a Japanese product yeah, it was clear to me that's a problem that had to be solved. And so, uh, uh, what did, what advice would you give to a a new country manager or someone tasked with with doing this job, with bringing a new technology or a new product into Japan? Well, um, with with the joint ventures we've done subsequent to my experience with work with with Salesforce, with uh, Concur, with Marketo, I guess actually not with Concur, with Marketo, with Marketo, but we have found it very useful to have someone from headquarters be in Japan for a few years as sort of the advocate for the president's agenda back to headquarters. So an advocate for the Japan advocate team. Advocate for the Japan team back to headquarters. Within or In every organization I've seen, there are plenty of people at headquarters who will tell Japan the way headquarters does things and, and encourage them to do things the headquarters way. Well, it seemed to me that would be kind of like the default mindset of someone coming over from headquarters. So it was mine. Yeah, it was mine. Right. Was like, the Oracle marketing way is the way that we should do it. <laughs> um, there are plenty of people who will fight those battles. One of, one of the things I remember being frustrated with in the earliest of Oracle, there were opportunities that we were working on with Ashisto where there were maybe 40 or 50 potential, uh, Oracle licenses to be sold 
if we would port to the SGI workstation, was one very specifically I remember. But we didn't have Oracle working on the SGI workstations. Right. And the conversation was all, well, if, if there are potentially 50 licenses after this initial test license to build the application, if there's 50 in deployment, why can't we get Hitachi to buy 50 licenses right now up front? And then we'll build the, the, the database for them. And, and the fact that Unify was already there in Japanese and was fast enough to do what they wanted to do somehow wasn't persuasive enough to get head. So we, we actually lost a significant uh, volume of business to Hitachi because we couldn't get our heads around making the effort to build one port of a product for one prototype system and believe that, in fact, Hitachi would follow through and buy the whole 50 cents they ultimately expected. That makes uh, sense, though. If, if that uh, even, even though there was a competitive product that they, that they could roll out, yeah. and even though because of the assertion they would prefer to use Oracle, they had been convinced Oracle would be the better product, they would rather work with us, we, we weren't willing to make that upfront investment to that. But I could see if, the, if that person is the, if Japan's advocate to headquarters, it makes sense. There'll be a lot more trust from the Japan organization, a trust of headquarters. Well, and, and they're being what heard. I, one of the key things I, t- I tell these people uh, when we're bringing them to Japan, when I'm doing my initial coaching and, and setting, setting the, the goals and parameters with them is that, what I've just said to you, that there are plenty of people who are going to tell Japan how headquarters does things and help them. Yeah. And I said, there will be plenty of times when the CEO is telling you he needs this or that special treatment or discount to make this deal happen. And you also personally will question whether that's really the case and whether even if headquarters does that, can he really close this? You'll, you'll, you'll find sometimes that you can question it. And, and if you have serious doubts and you can tease him out and help him realize, if you help him come to his own conclusion that it's, that it's not likely to happen, great. But otherwise, if you will go to bat for him every time he has a weird request, whether you fully understand it, fully believe it or not, once you've established over a year or so a pattern of, I've got your back. All right. And until I said, give him two strikes, you know, go to bat for him. If it doesn't work out and, and people at headquarters are complaining, you promised us this was going to work out. It didn't, so, you know, it doesn't always work out. Uh, give him, give him two strikes. And until, until there are three times that he makes you jump through hoops to get a deal done that he can't close, uh, assume that he's telling the truth and that what he needs back. And after the third time, then, you know, maybe you have a serious conversation with him or, but by that time, once you've done that a couple of times and gone to bat for him and, and defended him even after the deal didn't close, then when there's something that headquarters believes is the right way to do it, and you believe that it's right, and the CEO does not, then you have much more credibility explaining to him this is something that is not debatable with headquarters because of the president's right. attitudes, or this is this is just it's so built into the culture of headquarters. This is it's not the way it's done in Japan, but it's not a negotiable and thing. He'll trust and, you because you've gone because to bat. because you've already gone to bat for him. He already knows that you have his back, and that even telling him. That this you have to do this. It's because you have his back, and yeah. because you you think it's important for him to be successful and trusted by headquarters, that you then have a different context uh, with which to do it. So I think starting by making it clear to him that you're on his side through multiple experiences, and then uh, when when there are things that really are important for the success of the business in Japan, for that person's success as a leader, and that really matter to critical people in headquarters. Then, then you have, you'll have a much higher likelihood of getting him to listen to you. Excellent.
So before we wrap up, is there anything you want to add or anything I should have asked you that I forgot to? Yeah, I, I think, in thinking back on Oracle's history, like, and all the other companies I've worked with, the ones that have been most successful, there's one common thread. And that is that the country managers in Japan, every single quarter of their careers with the company, deliver the results that they promised at the beginning of the year. The headquarters counterpart of that is that in every one of those successful or successful companies, headquarters has not tried to control how those results are delivered. Mm. Headquarters has been extremely flexible and open-minded in allowing the CEO to do it the way that he believes it should be done in Japan. So there's a combination of tremendous flexibility and support for the CEO's innovations and creativity and what's comfortable for that person that make it possible for him to deliver the results. But there is the corresponding, with that flexibility, taking the responsibility to always deliver what was promised at the beginning of the year. And that creates sort of a long-term trust and opportunity for innovation. And that flexibility combined with uh, committed, capable leadership it makes a lot of sense. Has, has, has been sort of the common, was the common thread throughout Sano-san's entire career and with each of the most, the most successful companies we've worked with since has, has been that. Excellent. Well, Alan, thanks so much for spending this time. There's an amazing amount of material in here. You're welcome. So- and we're back. What I found most interesting, but perhaps least surprising, about Oracle's market entry was the importance of letting the Japanese office develop and run their own marketing and sales strategies. Now, this is hard to do, and it requires a great deal of trust in the local team. I mean, when you've got an optimized strategy with a proven track record, one that you know will move product, it's both logically and emotionally difficult to let Japan try something new. And in fact, it usually is best to start with the global playbook, unless there's a very good reason not to. Now, another thing Oracle had going for it, although we kind of glossed over this in the interview, is that the Japan head was reporting into the head of international and not the senior vice president of global sales. Great sales managers are often execution machines who have little time for excuses or claims that the sales process needs to be customized. We'll be talking a lot more about this in future episodes. You know, it's kind of amazing. Oracle's market entry happened more than 25 years ago, but the challenges they faced and the way they overcame them provide a perfect blueprint for companies who are entering the market today. In some ways, it's surprising how little changes in the technology industry. If you've got questions about Oracle's market entry, or you want to share some thoughts on our new expanded format here at Disrupting Japan, Alan and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com show058 and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Alan and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening 
to disrupting Japan.